depression, negative affect, which is like experiencing feelings like irritability and shame on a regular basis, and insecure attachment are all relationship risk factors. And if people um, are able to establish what we call a secure functioning relationship, a relationship where both people feel safe and heard and important, um, those risk factors don't matter. From the Relationship Center, I'm psychotherapist and dating coach Jessica Engel, and this is I Love You Too, a show about how to create and sustain meaningful relationships. I'm professional certified coach Josh Van Vliet, and on today's episode, we're going to talk about what to look for in a long-term partner. We're so happy you're here, and please remember that this show is not a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. So this is such a juicy topic today. I'm, I'm really excited to get into this with you. Uh, we're talking about what to look for in a long-term partner. And we've got a couple of questions that we're going to be digging into around this that I'm so excited to hear what you have to share because yeah. I, uh, I don't know, in fact, what you're going to share today. Hmm. Um, and the first question, well, I'm just going to share all three questions actually as kind of an, uh, an overview of where we're headed in this episode, the kind of things that we're going to get into. Great. Uh, we're going to start with what does science say about what makes a good partner. Wonderful. And then look at how do I, meaning you, the listener, clarify what you need in a partner. How do you clarify what you need in a partner? Because there are some things that may be pretty consistent across relationships that indicate uh, this tends to work well in a relationship. And there may be certain things that you are looking for in a partnership that may be different. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we're going to look a little bit at this question of how do I clarify what I want versus what I need in a partner? Because we often hear from folks, there's a particular, you know, there's someone they're, they're dating perhaps or they're, they're exploring things with, but they don't have this particular thing. Yeah. Like, how do I figure out, is this actually a deal breaker or is this something that is, well, maybe nice to have, but not actually all that important? Right. Yeah. And I actually want to add one more question to this list and a question that we'll start with, which is why be mindful about who you choose as a partner? It may seem a little obvious to some of us, but I think for others, there may be a sense of like, well, love, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Um, Won't I just, won't it just happen organically? Why why should I be thinking about this? Um, Yeah, I want to share with you a few things about why it's really great to think about this. So uh, billionaire Warren Buffett, he says, marry the right person. I'm serious about that. It will make a difference in your life. And he actually attributes his success to his first marriage. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. He says that his relationship with his first wife changed him as a person uh, and really encouraged him to go out and do big things. Um, and I think that the the wonderful thing is that science really confirms what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of really great research uh, showing that the key to a happy life is meaningful relationships. And even more specifically with romantic love, we really know uh, the impact of happy versus unhappy long-term relationships. So for example, we know that happy long-term relationships produce healthier human beings. We actually have less, say, heart disease or other health issues when we have a stable relationship. Uh, And then we also know that people actually live longer when they have 
healthy mm. long-term relationships. Um, we I wanted to share this really cool study that recently came out of Tel Aviv uh, that looked at health data for 10,000 Israeli men over 30 years. And they found that men who were dissatisfied with their marriage were 19% more likely on average to die during the 32-year study. <laughs> Dark. Uh, and then strokes were 69% more common among those who felt they had an unsuccessful marriage compared to those who indicated a very successful marriage. They actually found that all of these risks were the same as if these men were smoking or wow. not exercising. Wow. Yeah, so pretty huge. There's also a really famous uh, study out of Harvard, the Harvard Study of Adult Development, that tracked a couple groups of men since 1938. This is a really um, sort of milestone piece of research. And they found, among other things, that secure relationships at midlife were a better predictor of health 30 years later than cholesterol levels. Mm. Uh, and just in general, the, those researchers, their big takeaway from all of that data was, if you want a, a happy life, have happy relationships. Yeah. That's so interesting. I was just reading a, a wonderful book about relationships by Eric Barker. Mm -hmm. And he's citing, I think, some of that same research, but he also says that uh, like happiness and sense of well-being for people who are in uh, unhappy relationships was worse than if you were single. Yeah. There's like this, this high benefit to being in a, uh, a meaningful uh, kind of secure functioning relationship mm -hmm. uh, that kind of blows everything else out of the water. But there's also this flip side of if you choose the wrong person or if you're in the wrong relationship for you, uh, it can have a very big impact on your well-being. Yes. Like you were saying in some of the studies from, from Tel Aviv. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there are people hearing right now that are like, yeah, no, I've lived right. that. <laughs> <laughs> not news, not news to me. <laughs> it's a very clear impact when we're in a dysfunctional relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe let's talk next about what science tells us about what makes a, a good long-term partner. Yeah. I'm so curious to hear, uh, hear what you've collected on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to be pulling um, partially from Logan Urey's book, uh, How to Not Die Alone. And she's really pulling from the Gottmans, right. the good old Gottmans. A source of uh, so much wonderful wisdom about relationships. That's right. So the Gottmans are a couple up in Seattle. Um, John Gottman, they, they've been married for several decades, I think. And John uh, was the lead of something called the Love Lab, where they actually brought couples in and uh, really uh, watched them closely. And over time, they were able to pick up on things that predicted the end of a relationship within a really insane uh, rate. I think it was like 93% accuracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, so one of the things that they looked at is the characteristics that are they associate with what they call relationship masters versus relationship disasters. So we're going to talk about seven of these characteristics. The first is emotional stability. Okay, so somebody who can really self-regulate, not give in to anger and impulsivity is going to be a wonderful partner in the long term. Second, we've got kindness. So think generosity, empathy, supportiveness. Third, we have loyalty, the capacity to remain connected and committed even when things are getting really difficult. Uh, fourth, we have a growth mindset. Okay, so instead of being, uh, you know, taken aback by challenges, uh, self-critical, they're going to be motivated by those challenges, willing to learn. Okay. 
personality that brings out the best in you is number five, right? How are you around that person? Are you secure? Are you anxious? Whatever it is. Uh, sixth is skills to fight well. They can make repair attempts and really like de-escalate uh, conflicts. They're really going to invite in your perspective, make you feel seen and heard. And then seventh is the ability to make hard decisions with you. So the capacity to really like take turns, leading and following somebody who can remain supportive and collaborative rather than say blaming when things go difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I'm curious, I want to dig in a little bit more to some of these emotional stability. Mm -hmm. This one just jumped out at me because I know for myself, and I imagine this may be true for some of the folks uh, listening, I don't always feel emotionally stable. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> there are plenty of times when I feel, you know, anxious or, uh, you know, having a hard time processing something that I don't feel like I'm acting my best. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious to kind of get into the nuance of that because I, I, I on, you know, on the one hand, I can totally see what they mean mm -hmm. when someone is, is so caught up in their, uh, you know, worries or anxiety or anger or impulsivity that they can't kind of act, they can't pause, have a moment of pause between the experience they're having and the action that they take. It can be very difficult. It can cause some very painful experiences. Yeah. And at the same time, we're all kind of emotionally unstable some of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really great point. We certainly don't want to take these points as, um, encouragement to be perfect or to be, um, we don't have to be always happy uh, or calm. Um, yeah. So actually I might jump forward a little bit to another uh, study that was really interesting by a researcher called Samantha Joel. She used machine learning models to assess whether specific traits in a mate were predictive of happiness with that mate. Wait, what? Uh -huh. <laughs> she used machine learning <laughs> yeah. models to, to tell if certain traits were predictive of happiness in a mate. Yeah. That's mind-blowing to me right now. Okay, keep yeah, going. Sorry, that, no, that's it. okay. It's, it's an amazing piece of research. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about all of that in a bit, but the thing I want to point out is what they found is that we are not, we look for traits typically that, don't have to do with long-term happiness, don't have an impact on long-term happiness in a relationship. Okay, sure. Okay. So like, for example, height. I, right, you. perfect example. And what she found is that, um, interestingly enough, the thing that is the biggest predictor of happiness in a relationship is your partner's, how they would um, respond to questions like, are you happy um, prior to the relationship? Are you happy? Uh, are you free of depression? Like how the partner mm -hmm. would respond. So let's say I'm I'm dating someone, and we're we're talking about how this person would respond before we'd met. Yes. To saying, "Are you happy?" Right. Okay. And so you know, this to me felt a little bit like uh, not great news <laughs> 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 because. Um, I have a biased sample as therapist and I see a lot of people who struggle with right. depression and right. with anxiety Absolutely. and uh, particularly since 2020, mm -hmm. um, it seems like a tall order for everyone to 
you know, be in a position where they get to say like, yeah, I'm perfectly happy. Um, that would be nice if we were all in that spot before we got into a relationship. Right. Yeah. And so what was encouraging to me, you know, they said depression, negative affect, which is like experiencing feelings like irritability and shame on a regular basis and insecure attachment are all relationship risk factors. And if people um, are able to establish what we call a secure functioning relationship, a relationship where both people feel safe and heard and important, um, those risk factors don't matter. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? That, that's, uh, that's very encouraging. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it points to something actually really interesting to me that I've been thinking about as we've been preparing for this episode, that is how much of this is about like the individual qualities that we're looking for in somebody and how much of it is about the relationship, yes. who we are together. Yes, 100%. And those things are connected. The, right. You know, I think what this brings me back to is like, yeah, you could have depression, you could have anxiety, you could have attachment issues. Many of us do. And the thing you have power over is building relationship skill. Mm. What does it look like to respond even when you are feeling emotionally unstable, right? Mm. Can you have those feelings and also be in relationship in a way that is functional and, um, you know, supportive of your bond? Right. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because it's like we're not saying you have to have cleared up all of your feelings or your insecurities or your worries, your anxieties or doubts or whatever before yeah. you into a relationship. It's really that focus on that skill set of, okay, can I develop my capacity to have that experience mm-hmm. and still relate in a way with other per- people, with this person uh, that kind of, how would you put it? I'm blanking the words here, but like it, it, is functional, like it yeah. gives them a chance to support you, gives, you know. Enhances the closeness rather than increases it. Okay. So yeah, a great example I think is, um, let's say you are going through a bout of depression. Mm-hmm. For some people, depression actually manifests as irritability or mm-hmm. anger. Yeah. And perhaps, you know, everything's kind of getting to you. So in the emotionally unstable, you know, quote unquote, um, realm, the way that might get expressed is your partner comes in, maybe meets you late for a date and you chew them out. Right. Right. It's like, what the hell's wrong with you? I've been waiting for you. That's right. You always do this. You're so inconsiderate of my time, mm-hmm. that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And we can all see where that goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nowhere yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, and so the, the other option uh, would be, okay, I'm feeling really irritable when my partner shows up late and I say, sweetheart, I'm really struggling right now with with some depression or you know a down mood, and I'm just noticing that I'm feeling a little irritable. And I just need you to know it really means a lot to me when you show up on time. Mm. Right? Even as you're saying that, I'm like, oh, I want to <laughs> be there for you. <laughs> yes, yeah. So being able to go into naming the emotion and asking for what we need, that right there is emotional stability because hello, you're human. You're going to have a lot of emotions. Can you, um, you know, draw people closer by expressing them without a lot of, um, hard edges? Yeah. And I just loved how you, what you modeled there of like a way of sharing same, you know, experience that this person is having, 
But even as I was listening to you, I felt like, oh, I want to get closer to you. I yeah. want to support you. You're you're sharing this thing that's clearly maybe a little hard to share. Yeah, maybe feels a little scary to share, and that draws me closer versus the the criticizing or mm-hmm. uh, kind of lashing out irritability mm-hmm. that definitely pushes me away. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to really interact right. with you right now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> even if you know on some level that person may be suffering, and it actually isn't really about you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I really want to emphasize here, people may have heard those examples and kind of go like, I, I don't know how to do that or that's very foreign to me. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just want to emphasize, this is not like something you're born with. This mm-hmm. is something that we learn. Mm-hmm. And so if if that's something that you don't feel confident you can do, great news, you can. Um, it's going to take maybe a little bit of practice and training, um, but totally doable. Yeah, that's, I love that. That's uh, like the good news of all of this is that there are some very discrete skills that we can learn mm-hmm. both for ourselves to name and uh, understand what we're experiencing and be able to express it in a productive way and then also how to relate to other people around in those moments. Yes. And, and on either side of it, right, there's both how we uh, are with what we're experiencing but then there's also when we are in that the, the other partner's shoes when our partner is going through something. Yeah. How do we be with them in a way that uh, is supportive and loving and mm-hmm. produces more closeness instead mm-hmm. of more distance? Right. And is an expression of some of these other traits that we were talking about kindness, loyalty, right? Can you show up in a moment where your partner's distressed in a way that, um, yeah, again, allows you to get closer? Mm hmm. I know uh, one of the things that comes up for me when I hear the word loyalty is uh, a worry that's like, well, what if I don't know if they're my person yet? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to just be loyal to whoever walks in the door. Yes. And so there's, and we're looking at what, like what to look for in a long-term partner. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's an interesting tension here between Loyalty is a wonderful quality yes. that you really do is makes a big difference in a partner. And at the same time, we're trying to assess like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to just be loyal immediately. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot we could pull out in there. Dating is about assessing what is possible in a relationship. Mm. Yeah. And so I think that there's a way to be loyal without having clarity or a, a stated intention to be there forever. Mm. If we haven't made an explicit commitment to each other yet, mm-hmm. like how do I know if, if loyalty is present? Um, like what, you know, how am I assessing that? How do I know? How do I know if they're Great. really loyal? Yeah, totally. So um, one way to look at that, that I appreciate Logan talking about in her book um, is to look at their other relationships. Okay. So do they have relationships with people from earlier in their life? Um, there's some exceptions to that. Some people move around. Um, and, you know, are they, are they meeting with people from different phases of life? Because that indicates they, they do retain relationships over time. Um, and then also just kind of getting a sense of, of their relationships. And um, they may make comments that indicate to you either that they stick around when things get hard or maybe they, they cut and run. Mm-hmm. The other thing to look at there, I think, is when you are in distress in some way, mm-hmm. how do they respond to that? 
Do they pull away? Do they shame or criticize you? Or do they stay close? Do they offer support? And even, you know, I hear the piece in here about like, it's not always going to be appropriate at certain levels of dating for someone to like be your your go-to person. Like maybe you've gone on a few dates. Right. It's not appropriate really to, you know, lean on them in the middle of a crisis potentially. Right. And at the level that you're at, are they showing up? Okay. So I can imagine someone who's gone, you know, on a few dates with someone else um, if they understand that person's going through something, they might be reaching out, right? Mm-hmm. To say like, I'm thinking about you and I'm wondering how you're doing. Mm-hmm. Is there anything I can do to mm-hmm. support you? Yeah. Versus like, gosh, I told that person my grandma's sick and I haven't heard from them in a week. Right. Yeah. There's a whole uh, other podcast or multiple podcasts I'm sure we'll, we'll make about, uh, episodes we'll make about pacing, yeah, because uh, that's it's almost like we kind of can't talk about what to look for in a partner without looking talking about kind of pacing and how to because uh, some of this happens over time, right? You're not mm-hmm. going to know all of this from the first date or the first month. You yes. know, there's some of these things that you'll learn as you're saying out of experiencing each other at each stage of dating and seeing how are they responding when I'm in distress or how mm. how are we together when we're facing a difficult challenge, mm-hmm. difficult decision to have to make um, that you're going to learn so much out of that versus out of what we may say about ourselves or, mm-hmm. you know, like that. Absolutely. I'm so looking forward to that conversation. And um, yeah, I think that what what really struck me about these different uh, qualities, these seven qualities I've, I've named versus the ones we'll go over later of like, what are the common things people look for that, that don't actually correlate to relationship happiness? Mm. The ones that we're talking about that that the Gottmans, you know, uncovered is they're they take time to assess, right. and the other ones are like you can assess them basically on a dating app, right? Um, and so that I think that's maybe one of the like truths of of dating mindfully for a long term relationship. We have to take time to right. assess, and we have to allow that. That's that's just part of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I have one more sort of like beautiful list that uh, I think is a great way to wrap our minds around like what makes a relationship master who is emotionally receptive. Okay. This comes from, excuse me, comes from Ken Page's work. He d- wrote the book and has a great podcast called Deeper Dating. One of my dating coach uh, mentors from afar. Um, and he likes to talk about attractions of inspiration. Mm. So attractions of inspiration are relationships characterized by ease and warmth. And we can identify an attraction of inspiration with a few different questions. Uh, For example, are you inspired by your partner's mostly consistent caring and acceptance? Are you inspired by their goodness, their decency and integrity? Is your love fueled by respect for the kind of person your partner is? Um, are you both willing to do the hard work of healing the relationship's areas of weakness? Do you like who you are in the presence of your partner? Uh, does he or she make you a better you? Mm-hmm. I love that list. Mm-hmm. It it feels like it 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 also points towards um, how are we together? Yes. Which I've just been loving that frame recently. 
is like because there is this interesting interplay between there are some qualities that you know you do want to look for in a partner, mm-hmm. like you were mentioning earlier um, from the Gottmans, and there's also this quality of like, and how are we together, mm-hmm. and we relate differently to different people, and kind of different people bring out different qualities in us. Yeah, and so it's not like a kind of uh, right, wrong uh, kind of assessment of like, oh, good partner, bad partner. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really more like good partner for me mm-hmm. or not. Like, yes. you know, are, are, who are, what is our relationship like? How are we together? Are we, as you're saying, like, uh, you know, emotionally responsive? Are we kind? Mm-hmm. Do we respect each other? Is there room for uh, both of us in the relationship, both of what we need and want, mm-hmm. um, what's important to us? Yes. Yeah. It makes me think about a couple therapists, you know, we like to talk about there's the individuals and then there's this third organism, which is the relationship. And we're really, you know, a couple therapist is actually treating the relationship, not the individuals. And um, yeah, so I think in dating, we can be assessing the we-ness from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So this makes me want to talk a little bit more about what doesn't make someone a good partner. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Ken Page, he talks about the attractions of inspiration and he also talks about what he refers to uh, refers to as attractions of deprivation. Okay. So these are relationships I hear clients talk about often. Mm-hmm. They're easy to get caught in and um, they are characterized by a sense of lack. Okay, so when I think of attractions of deprivation, I tend to think of, um, do you know the myth of Tantalus? Uh, No. From Greek mythology, okay. So he was a king that was punished by uh, Zeus uh, for some something he did. I don't remember what he did, but he was punished by being placed in a pool and near a fruit tree. But the pool would, the water would rise up right below his mouth and then go back down over and over again all day long. And he was very, very thirsty. Mm -hmm. And so he wasn't able to drink any water. Mm -hmm. And the fruit tree was like just out of reach. Yeah. And he was super hungry. Yeah. This is his eternity. So, (laughs) yeah. And so I think these attractions of deprivation can have that experience where it's like, it kind of feels like it's, we almost get the love that we really need, but then we never quite get all of it. Um, it reminds me of the uh, kind of intermittent uh, uh, reward yes. reinforcement. Beautiful, yeah. Um, I'm free, you probably know the studies better than I do, but uh, the kind of thing where they've shown where rats and mice in cages, and I think this has also been shown to be true in humans, mm-hmm. where if we're intermittently reinforced for doing something, like we do something and sometimes we get a great result yeah. and other times we don't, it's more addictive, more engaging. Kind of, we want to do it more than if we always get a good result. That's right. Yeah. And this is what drives gambling and you yes. know all these other things. Anyway. Yeah, it's a fascinating finding. Yeah, they found that the the mice, when the mice were able to consistently push a lever and get food or, or some sort of substance, they were much less interested in the lever than the rats who pushed the lever uh, and the food or drugs or whatever only came out some of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And um, Ken talks about that. This is what we're talking about is Mm. they're very, very addictive because that circuitry gets activated inside of us. We Mm -hmm. feel like maybe if I just try harder. I just do it right. If I just communicate in the right way to Mm -hmm. them or if I just really understand them and Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so characteristics of an attraction of deprivation, people may... um, 
recognize these from their lives. Uh, this is when somebody may uh, exhibit lying or cheating mm -hmm. behaviors, selfish behavior, unavailability. When you say selfish behavior, mm -hmm. I've been selfish. So <laughs> I just want to clarify, <laughs> what are we talking about when we say selfish behavior? Yeah, good question. Well, um, okay, how about you're on a hike and you your ankle starts to hurt a little bit and your partner um, really just kind of pushes you to keep going. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's like they're, they're more excited about finishing the hike than they are about taking care of you and your ankle. You got it. Mm -hmm. uh, so selfish behavior, unavailability, they maybe can't or won't commit fully, don't have time to spend with you. Addictive behavior, hurtful behavior, right? Maybe they're making digs or... Um, otherwise not really respecting you. Mm -hmm. uh, untreated or unresolved emotional or psychological disorders and blaming or manipulative behavior. And so again, with the untreated or unresolved psychological disorders, we're not talking about uh, if you might be experiencing depression or anxiety, it's like a rule out for a relationship. Mm -hmm. We're really talking like what would be an example of that? Yeah, so untreated or unresolved uh, emotional psychological disorders that might include bipolar disorder uh, that is not being addressed through therapy or medication mm -hmm. uh, or major depressive disorder where the person really just refuses to get help for it. Mm -hmm. We're definitely, again, we don't want you to come away from this thinking you have to be perfect mm -hmm. or um, you know, perfectly well-adjusted in order to have a relationship many, many people have chronic depression and anxiety that they have to manage. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe an uh, analogy might be like, say you've, you've, you know, are dating and you meet somebody who's diabetic, but they refuse to take insulin, for example, right? Um, if somebody is experiencing depression and anxiety, how are they managing that? Are mm -hmm. they going to therapy? Are they taking other self-care uh, approaches or not? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, are they getting support in some way? Mm -hmm. Are they engaged in their healing? Mm -hmm. All right. And, and I would imagine also some of these things point back to some of the other criteria on this list, right? Are they able to show up in a way that is kind, that is consistently available? Mm -hmm. Where if, you know, their uh, experience of their mental health is such that uh, they may still be getting support, but it's, it's so intense right now that they just aren't consistently available. Yes. That may not be at this time, the right fit for a partner. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. And it can be so, this is the thing I think about these attractions of deprivation, it can be so tempting uh, to want to be there to help them heal, mm -hmm. whether it's from addiction or whether it's from a major mental illness. And, you know, I know I've sometimes had the thought like, well, if I'm not there, who else will be? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, which is putting a lot of responsibility on your shoulders and kind of overemphasizing or or maybe a distortion of our own importance sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. like, oh, I have to save this person um, when it's like, it's not about me or it's not about us, mm -hmm. right? It's about, uh, are they really available for the kind of relationship, the kind of mutual equal relationship yeah. that we're really craving Yeah, underneath um, underneath that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I, I imagine there may be a question in some 
listeners' minds of like, what about the loyalty piece? Right. Right. Um, and I think that again, that, that comes back. So to flesh that out a little bit, okay, you just told me that I should be loyal and look for loyal partners. And then you're also telling me like, if someone's going through something and they aren't available for a relationship, I should just cut and run. That, that seems like it doesn't quite make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, this comes back to like, are they doing anything to take care of themselves? Um, there is, I think with the loyalty piece, we have to balance loyalty to ourselves and loyalty to the other person, right? If you're letting go of all of your needs, and not taking care of yourself, that actually doesn't benefit the other person or the relationship at all. Right. And and I think there's also an interesting nuance here between what are we looking for at the beginning of a relationship mm-hmm. and how are we with someone who we're in a committed partnership with? Yes. And that, uh, you know, loyalty obviously shows up differently at each stage, as you were saying earlier, at each stage of dating, mm-hmm. uh, we may... Uh, want to pause before getting into a relationship with somebody, for example, who's experiencing addiction, yeah, uh, untreated addiction, right? Um, that may not be the right time to be in a relationship with that person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus, if perhaps our committed partner uh, becomes, you know, has an accident, goes, starts getting pain medication for their pain, becomes addicted, mm-hmm. it's a different, maybe a different conversation. There, yeah. there is still a perhaps a choice point at some point in there, you know, we don't need to go too far down that rabbit hole, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's just, there may be a different kind of um, process or like a way of showing up in that moment that we wouldn't have done at a stage of relationship where it's like three weeks into knowing this person, it's not appropriate for us to be supporting them at that level. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a really great point. Uh and I think part of what's happening in here when we're dating is we're really, we're making guesses at how someone will be long-term based on the information that we're getting. Which is kind of a foolish endeavor <laughs> given how completely unpredictable life is. And, you know, just fundamentally, we just don't know, right? right. We just, we never know how things are going to turn out. We're just kind of taking our best guess. We're gathering the information we can and making you know, kind of a, as good and educated decisions we can now without, you know, any promises about what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, it, it is a bit of a, a fool's errand and we have to do our best right. with that process, right? And so I think that, you know, if at the beginning of a relationship you realize, gosh, okay, this person is really suffering from an addiction, part of the thinking there is, well, if this is what I'm finding them in right now, the best predictor of the future is the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm going to make the assumption that if he's not willing to get help or if they're not willing to get help, then this this may only get worse, right? Mm-hmm. Many mental health issues without treatment just get worse. Um, and so at that point, it may not be accurate, but it may be self-protective. Mm-hmm. So those are the characteristics of an attraction of deprivation I want to shift over to back to Logan Yuri's book and some of the things that she pointed out are uh, easily observable traits that a lot of people look for mm-hmm. when they are dating that research actually shows do not contribute to long-term relationship happiness. I'm so excited for this list. <laughs> I'm wondering if you have guesses what, what is on this list. I may have poked a little bit at Logan Yuri's book as I was mm-hmm. preparing for this episode, so I, I may have some thoughts or ideas. 
Um, but I'm I'm excited to get into the piece around attraction yeah. as well, which may be part of this list, and maybe also in a, a separate conversation. But mm-hmm. uh, but go ahead, I want to hear okay. what's on this list. So the four things that she uh, discusses are wealth, mm-hmm. and we'll add a little caveat here: money does matter in general for happiness and for relationships, but only to a point. Mm-hmm. So after your needs are are really met and a little more than that, you know, going for the wealthiest partner isn't going to have any impact on relationship happiness. Mm-hmm. The second one is physical attractiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reasoning there is lust fades, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you've got the hottest uh, relation or the hottest partner you could imagine, your lust is going to fade over time. It's not going to go away necessarily, but. Um, we have to have more than that mm-hmm. for the happiness. Uh, similar personalities, mm-hmm. and I think will maybe surprise some people. And also shared hobbies. Mm-hmm. Shared hobbies do not, it's, it's so funny to me. I love that this is on this list because I always hear people say, well, I need to find someone with common interests. And mm-hmm. that is n- not my experience as a, as a dating coach seeing a lot of relationships form. Mm-hmm. That really doesn't, it doesn't matter as much as people think it does. Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So wealth, physical attractiveness. Uh, uh, what's the third one? Similar personalities. Similar like personalities. I'm introverted and I need an introvert. Mm-hmm. And shared interests. Okay. But I think we should talk about attraction because that's, Great. that's uh, <laughs> you know, I think some of the other ones are maybe a little bit less surprising or less kind of controversial, but a lot of us have this thought that like, well, I've got to be attracted to the person Mm -hmm. and we don't even necessarily know what that means. I think when we say that, Mm -hmm. right, there's like a lot of levels of attraction that when we really unpack it, there are a lot of different ways that we're attracted to somebody. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on this. Cause I I hear what Logan Yuri is saying about physical attractiveness and that fades over time and that makes sense. And our bodies change, right? So it's like even mm-hmm. if you marry the absolute hottest person now in 20 years, are they still going to look like that? No, they're going to have whatever. They're going to have little wrinkles and things mm-hmm. and have gained weight and whatever. And so it's if you're just relying on that to keep mm-hmm. your connection going, you're going to be in trouble. Yes. For any kind of meaningful long-term relationship. Yeah. And we want to be attracted to the person we're with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. We want to be attracted to our partner. It's important to be attracted to our partner. In fact, um, sexual satisfaction is one huge piece of long-term relationship happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether you are attracted to someone is a little different from physical attractiveness. Mm. Uh-huh. Tell me more. So let's think about physical attractiveness as like, what does society say? about whether or not this person is attractive. Okay. Okay. So um, going back to Ken Page, one of the concepts he presents that I love is, uh, you know, looking at partners, uh, looking at your attraction to partners on a scale of zero to 10. And what he's suggesting there is you're not looking at, is this person a 10 in the eyes of society? you're looking at how drawn am I to this person on all levels, okay? And he really recommends actually aiming for people who you are drawn to, regardless of what society says about them, your attractive attraction to them is between a four and a seven. 
wait, what? <laughs> Hold up. So a couple of things here. Number one, so we're separating out, this isn't like a 10 on the hot or not, whatever right. online poll. Right. This is your personal attraction to them. Yeah. And you're telling me that we shouldn't go for people who are a 10 yeah. on our own attractiveness scale. Yes, that's correct. Well, um, I mean, you can give it a try. <laughs> uh, the, the point, Experiment at home. <laughs> yeah, really. Go do research and development, see how that goes. I mean, for a lot of people, they do go for the, the what for them is a 10 out of 10, mm-hmm. makes their we- knees weak and everything. Um, Ken's point, which I agree with, is that oftentimes that's not just about physical attraction or say pheromones. It's also about um, some way that they get our attachment system going. Mm -hmm. Um, Coming back to intermittent reinforcement, it's often people who there's some sort of intermittent reinforcement experience where we're actually not going to get all the things that we need from them. Mm -hmm. And we kind of pick this up on some level. They may be people who remind us of people from the past and basically they just get our nervous system a little bit activated in addition to attracted. Mm. And so... in Wait, so they get our nervous system activated in what way? Say more about that. Yeah, okay. So, it you know, th- these concepts feel like nesting um, dolls. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it's like I want to explain all the things. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so... You've probably heard the like kind of pop psychology belief that like we're attracted to people who remind us of our mom or our dad. Sure. Okay. So it's kind of along those lines. Other people, we, we project onto them. Okay. They remind us of people from our past without us even really realizing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so for a lot of people, the 10 out of 10 is not just a hottie. Mm-hmm. Doesn't just fit our like whatever type we might uh, be drawn to. They often also, um, maybe on a very s- sort of unconscious level, um, remind us of somebody who we were very attached to, but maybe didn't get all of our needs met by. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's a part of our nervous system that wants to uh, correct that experience. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is referred to as repetition compulsion. Okay. If you want to go real Freudian. Ooh. Ooh. Freudian. <laughs> so we're drawn to relationships where they remind us of past um, sort of unmet needs and we want to fix that. On, on an unconscious level. So if my dad was distant, I might have a tendency to be attracted to people who are a little aloof mm. and may not be that emotionally responsive, accessible, responsive, engaged kind of person, but my nervous system uh, gets really activated around them and kind of draws me closer to them in a way that feels like love mm-hmm. because my first experience of a, a, a man that I had deep love for was one where there was love, but also a lot of distance. Mm-hmm. And so it it, uh, it can often feel, we kind of, I think, equate it to that experience that we see in the media and whatever, and the, like love at first sight, like super intense, weak at the knees, mm-hmm. like the kind of romance novel, like, ah, oh, mm-hmm. kind of experience. And um what I'm what I'm getting and I kind of what I, I think I've seen also in my own life is that is it's very like almost addicting. Yeah. It kind of has that that experience of like almost a compulsion or a mm-hmm. 
like kind of that intermittent reinforcement, like um, we kind of get high off of it mm-hmm. and we kind of mix up some of those signals also about what is attraction and what is this other unmet need trying to get expressed or get met um, that kind of feels very compelling but ultimately is very likely to be pretty unsatisfying uh, in a long-term relationship and not actually really meeting these deeper needs for connection and intimacy and safety. Yeah, one of the chapters Logan has in her book is called F the Spark. I really appreciate that that uh, title. <laughs> yes, I know. I love that too. Yeah, and, and the, the sort of idea in there is in healthy long-term relationships, oftentimes attraction is something that deepens over time and it may not actually be present like like that sort of hot physical attraction that you associate with the 10 out of 10 that's not necessarily going to be present right at the beginning when you see them on the app when you talk to them um, on the phone when you meet them for the first time Mm -hmm. that sort of thing deepens as you to create that really secure uh, warm connection and I think that's very surprising for some people. Yeah, very counterintuitive. It goes against all of the the love stories that we see, or right. almost all the love stories that we see in media and books and TV. Yeah. I really want to emphasize here, because I think it's easy to not hear this totally um, correctly. We're not saying that you should keep seeing someone if you are not attracted to them or if your attraction to them is low and just keeps getting lower. That is not what we're saying. Good clarification. (laughs) As good a person as they are, you do need to be attracted to them. And, you know, going for noticing your own attraction how it is over time and maybe not going for the 10 out of 10. Um, And also, you know, just sort of letting go of, gosh, what does society think about this person and their attractiveness and noticing your own draw to them on multiple levels, physical, emotional, spiritual, all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we're aiming for that four to seven window Mm -hmm. out of 10. Uh, Just like you're saying, we're not saying, oh, if it's a one, just keep going. You're going to get attracted to them eventually. No, we're not saying that, but... Um, but kind of maybe dial it back from the most intense 10 mm-hmm. out of 10 mm-hmm. because that's going to be cause you problems. Yeah. yeah. So um, there, there are a few other uh, of these traits that are like easy to look for but not actually applicable or um, important in long-term relationships I want to name. Okay. From that same study I mentioned earlier from Samantha Joel, Um, with the machine learning models that assess whether specific traits in a mate were predictive of happiness with that mate. Mm -hmm. Uh, First one, race or ethnicity. Okay. We have religious affiliation. Really? Yeah. Height. Mm -hmm. Occupation. Mm -hmm. Physical attractiveness. Mm -hmm. Previous marital status. Mm. Mm -hmm. Sexual tastes. Interesting. Simul- and sorry, last one, similarity to oneself. Mm-hmm. So sexual taste, like whether or not they're similar to you or indissimilar things doesn't actually correlate with longer happiness. Right. And I imagine, you know, if we go back to what does matter, you know, there's emotional stability, kindness, loyalty, growth mindset. Uh, the growth mindset in particular, you know, um, Dan Savage talks about um, GGG, mm-hmm. right? Do you remember what the... Good giving and... Good giving, do game? I remember? 
good giving in game. You got it. So um, they've got some skill. That's a good one, right? See, I'm not even remembering. I'm like, here's a concept. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an expert. Uh, dance app. Yeah. My takeaway from that, I actually don't remember exactly what his definition of it was, was essentially that are they uh, kind of generous mm-hmm. uh, in the bedroom and are they up for trying things? Are they willing to explore with you and experiment and kind of uh, be in it together? Yes. So I think that's where you're going with that growth mindset. If I, you've like, got it. Whether or not we have the same tastes, are you are you open to exploring? Are you open to being kind of experiment? Are you interested in in helping your partner experience yeah. sexual satisfaction and, and joy and yeah. happiness? Absolutely, you got it. What's interesting, I think, about this conversation is that this list of what to look for in a partner is also, in many ways, a really good roadmap for how to be a good partner. Mm-hmm. And that one of the one of the traps I think we can get into when we are dating, we're kind of serious about looking for our long-term partner, is we get into this very evaluative checklist kind of mm. assessing the other person. Are they are they this? Are they that? Are they that? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Next. You know. And we forget about how are we showing up? Are we showing yeah. up in a way that our our partner will recognize us when they find us? Yeah. Um, and that it, this isn't a just about what can I get from this person. Yeah. Um, in the words of my friend and, and coach Zotobi, uh, what can I give? Mm-hmm. Right? The, mm-hmm. That kind of switching from that, what can I get? What can I get? What can I get? To what can I give? Who are we together? Yeah. What is? Do we have a shared vision for partnership, for our relationship, for the kind of life we want to have together? Yeah, I'm so glad you're pointing that out because. I think that is kind of the downside of knowing all these things is you can you can go into, I, I see a lot of my clients struggling with this. They'll go into dates and it's like, I didn't really feel a connection. And like, I felt like I, it just sort of felt kind of businessy or formal or something. And, and it's like, yeah. And I was sitting there assessing them on all these criteria right? and I wasn't present. So it's, of course you weren't connected. Like you yeah. weren't, you weren't there. You weren't showing up and being interested and doing the things that would naturally create a connection. Yeah. And so yeah. we it's such a yeah, we can we can so miss the opportunities yeah. in that way. Yeah, and I think that goes back to really kind of like settling into the truth of like really dating for a long-term relationship, it takes time. Right. So al- allowing allowing you and the other person to take that time, right? Mm-hmm. And going into a date Yes, I want to be aware of things that that they might be showing me, and like let your evaluative brain know we're going to take the time needed to really gather the information we need. We don't have to do it within one date, mm-hmm. um, and I think that can really bring in more of that sense of ease. And like, can we just be together and and see what's possible when we're more present? Yeah, yeah, I love that. Okay. I uh, so that we've just talked about how what does science have to say about what makes a good partner in a lot of wonderful depth here, mm-hmm. going down all kinds of wonderfully nuanced rabbit holes. Um, so let's go into the second question here, which is how do I clarify what I need in a partner? Yes, yeah, because uh, research is research, and you are not a research study; you are an individual. Mm-hmm. And so um, the tool that we like to use on our team uh, is, there's two tools actually. One is a relationship inventory. Okay. okay? And this is where we are inventorying in a uh, spreadsheet 
past relationships and all sorts of things about those relationships, uh, including what it taught us about what we need or don't need in a relationship. Okay, so that's number one, looking at the past to gain some uh, insight. Okay. And then number two is a, something called an ideal mate exercise. This I got from fellow therapist and dating coach Pella Schaefer Weissman, and it's adapted from a book by David Steele called Conscious Dating. And basically, it's a three-tiered list where you write out everything that you are looking for in a mate, and then you prioritize uh, all of those different things. Um, yeah, so those are our two main tools. Okay. Are these tools that we can make available to folks? They are. On the pod? Yeah, on the pod. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll definitely share those. Take a look in the show notes. And is there any uh, guidance or kind of main takeaways from those things that we could share with folks? Yeah, well, we'll talk a little bit more about the ideal mate exercise in a little bit. Um, One thing I'll just say about the relationship inventory, the point of that one is to really assess patterns So part of what we actually have people do is uh, we have them complete it such that they're completing it um, not by looking at one relationship at a time, but by looking at one dimension of all their relationships at a time. So for example, um, you know, attachment style. Mm. Okay. So if they go through, they've got a bunch of relationships they're inventorying, they're looking at the, the attachment style, writing down the attachment style of each partner one at a time okay. so that they can really see the pattern over time if there is one. Okay. Okay. So that's number one. Number two, I think this is a really great way to look in particular for what we might refer to as like your relationship kryptonite. Mm-hmm. So if you start to see that you have like a soft spot for say, I don't know, creative souls who also have uh, untreated mental illness and an avoidant attachment style, therefore never commit to you. Mm. Um, that's some good information, Yeah. right? So we all have kind of those, those soft spots. And um, I think that only by looking back and really assessing things over time, can we start to see them? That's, that's really interesting because I, you know, as we were saying, we can talk about the research and all these things all day. And then there are different things for each of us that are those little where we get hooked in Mm -hmm. by an old pattern, for example, like what you're saying, and having some way to look back in our own lives and see, oh, this is what it is for me. Mm -hmm. This is how it shows up for me. This is what I need to be aware of, Yeah, which is not going to be relevant for everybody else, but it's super important for you to know for yourself. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other resource that I really love for this is Ken Page's book, Deeper Dating, which I mentioned earlier. There's a bunch of exercises in there to help you discover what he refers to as your core gifts. And his whole premise is that we all have gifts. And when we end up being chronically single or in relationships that are characterized by that kind of deprivational quality, oftentimes we are not finding people who can honor our gifts. So an example of this would be, uh, let's say uh, your core gift is a deep sense of kindness and um, you have a big heart you may have a tendency if you're if you're not able to really learn how to honor that gift within yourself and choose people who honor it, you may attract people who um, are harsh and who are um, yeah not not 
respectful of the fact that you you have a big sensitive heart. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So that would be the the main thing is to do a little bit of that work on paper, perhaps with a friend or a professional to really sense uh, what are the things I've learned from my past relationships and to get on paper, what are all the things I think I'm looking for in a mate? Mm-hmm. I imagine, I actually don't know if you do this with any of uh, the folks you work with, but I imagine that it may also be useful in there to understand what are those kind of on paper things like that I think I should be looking for that we were talking about earlier, these qualities that don't actually correlate. Mm-hmm. What are those for you? Like, are you really set on having a partner who is, you know, also really into outdoorsy stuff, for mm-hmm. instance, or a partner who is a certain height? Mm-hmm. Um, and really kind of asking yourself, actually one of our clinicians mentioned this to me that she also often asks people, will this impact the quality of your relationship? Yeah. And really like really looking at that, right? It's like, really, will this really impact the quality of your relationship if you're not both outdoorsy or you're not both, you know, therapists, for mm-hmm. instance, or you're not both uh, really into gaming, yes. whatever it might be. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciated that Logan talks about with the common interests piece that's a little bit nuanced is you can absolutely have different interests so long as you manage that in a way that doesn't negatively impact uh, your quality time together in either direction, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you you, want to give your partner freedom to do the things that they love if you don't love them Mm -hmm. and they also need to be, you know, spending enough time with you, dude, to to really continue to deepen that bond. Right. Right. The other thing that I've uh, found helpful in the past, and this also comes from uh, Zotobi, who I mentioned earlier, he talks about creating an authentic relationship vision Mm -hmm. that is all about how are we together. Yeah. Talking a little bit more about what we were saying earlier, like what is the relationship? What is that kind of meeting of the two of you together? That's like... Uh, and so shifting from things like, you know, they think the way that I do mm-hmm. to we communicate openly and lovingly. Yes. That kind of, that's what we're, we're attuning to. Uh, or like we're, you know, we love wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Like what are the qualities of how we are together that I want in a relationship mm-hmm. that will then help me navigate as I'm exploring relationships with people. Mm-hmm is my vision present here? Mm-hmm. Do yeah. we have a shared vision? Are we both really interested in, you know, helping each other fulfill our purpose? Mm-hmm. That part of our shared vision. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. There's an exercise that I like to do with a lot of clients where we actually have them speak to their future partner, mm-hmm. right? So I'm a drama therapist. I like to use role play and mm-hmm. sort of imaginal work and have a practice of, speaking to that future partner and kind of feeling the energy of their rapport and of their dynamic. Mm. Um, and I find that really powerful uh, because it it can be, you know, we can shift out of the like cognitive, cognitive analysis, this trait, this trait, this trait, and shift into like experiencing what we want to feel potentially or, or what we will feel, feel with that part, person. That is so interesting because... It's very much like what I remember doing when I was looking at online dating profiles. Mm-hmm. That I got to a point 
after doing more of the kind of looking for the check boxes and I had whatever my things were and um, not having great success with that, having some relationships mm-hmm. that didn't go the way I wanted them to and realizing the more that I was tuning into what's the energy of mm. this kind of, what's the energy I get from reading this profile yeah. experience I have was far more reliable for me in finding people who at least were a good possibility for mm-hmm. connection. And then again, leaning more into, yeah, what is that experience of how we are together? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I just, I'm appreciating that and appreciating how important that is to be able to kind of tune into that energy without getting too woo-woo about it, but like, just like, what's the experience like? Yeah. What is it that I am going to feel, I am going to feel recognized, I'm going to feel understood, I'm going to feel loved, deeply loved, mm-hmm. uh, feel like this person cares, mm-hmm. feel like there's this quality of playfulness, of, of connection that mm-hmm. we're both leaning in, we're both engaged, uh, that kind of tunes our radar on a different way than when we're on that like checkbox evaluative yeah. kind of approach. Absolutely. I love, I love that you did that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So anything else that you'd want to say about how to clarify what, what I need in a partner? I mean, I, I think the, maybe the last thought here is we aren't always great at knowing what we need. Mm-hmm. We all have blind spots. Mm-hmm. And your loved ones may be able to see some things that you're not seeing. Mm. I want to caveat this. Some of your loved ones. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. You really want to choose people who you trust and who you, you really trust their judgment and their sense of you and maybe ask, what do you think I need in a partner? That is such a sweet and vulnerable question because mm-hmm. it really uh, is you're, you're kind of opening yourself up to uh, very authentic kind of feedback and, mm-hmm. and support. Uh, what a sweet way to invite in support from your friends. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, help me swipe on my profile or help me write my profile better. It's like, what do you think I need in a partner? Mm-hmm. It's going to really be good for me. Mm-hmm. I love that. The other thought I was just having about all of this is uh, give yourself permission to experiment. Mm. That, and it, it's, it can be a hard thing to do, mm-hmm. I think, especially when we're dating kind of into our 30s and later in life and yeah. it feels like there's sometimes additional pressure on timeline and mm-hmm. um, I've got to, you know, got to get the partner so I can have the kids mm-hmm. on the time and but I respect that it's a can be a very hard thing to do, but at the same time, we learn so much about what we really need out of our experiences. Yeah, and we can have the the best thoughts about what we think we need, and then we the only way to to kind of verify is to go out and experience mm-hmm. and go on dates and mm-hmm. have some relationships. And uh, out of that, you're really going to see, oh no, this this yeah. is what's really important. Such a great such a great point. And, and to that point, you know, we have a lot of clients who come to us who don't have a lot of relationship experience and that this exercise of, of creating an ideal mate list and whatnot is very hard for that reason. And I think going for the experiences is really important and also consider non-romantic relationships. Ooh. Yeah. So, 
<laughs> well, you know, we all, we, all of us have relationships, whether or not we've, we have a romantic history. And you've probably learned a lot about yourself and about what you need in relationships through your friendships, mm. through your family relationships, through your relationships with coworkers. So if you don't have a ton of relationship experience, have no fear. Mm. Um, you probably know a fair amount about yourself already just from looking at those relationships. Mm. That's such a great suggestion, great mm. way to orient. Use uh, all of your life experience to mm -hmm. learn and grow. Mm-hmm. Growth mindset. Woohoo. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well then, uh, maybe we'll round it out here with how do I clarify what I need versus what I want? Mm -hmm. Such a good question. And I will tell you, basically everyone we work with needs, needs help with this. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in the ideal mate exercise, the exercise is basically like you write your full list. These are all the things I'm looking for in a partner. And then you split them into three lists. The first one is requirements. So the traits you cannot live without. The second is strong desires. So your relationship would survive with your par partner if they didn't have these, but it might not necessarily thrive. I like to think of this one as like, what are the things I'd be willing to go to therapy over? Mm, interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the third list is wants. So the icing on the cake, the relationship can survive and even thrive without these. Okay. Can you give me some examples of what types of things might, I mean, I guess it's probably different for each person, but uh, what might fall into these? Absolutely. Well, I would suggest placing all of the research-based traits mentioned earlier on the list in your requirements mm. section. And within that, because you've done the relationship inventory and thought a few things through, placing like your specific versions of those things, right? So remember I mentioned earlier, kryptonite, if you have that soft spot for sensitive creative souls who can't commit and have uh, untreated mental illness, write that down. Mm -hmm. And then strong desires, what's an example of a strong desire? I mean, again, it, it really does vary. Yeah. Um, well, I'm just thinking about for myself when I did my own version of this when I was looking for my partner, when I was looking for you, um, <laughs> that, you know, like smoking. Mm. Smoking was a deal breaker for me. Mm -hmm. And it, it isn't for everybody, obviously. Like that's not, it's very personal to me, but mm -hmm. I, as a person who is very sensitive to smells, yeah. um, it it was just so, I knew it was gonna be so hard on my system to be around somebody who was, was a cigarette smoker mm -hmm. that, that that was just a that was a deal breaker for me um, and I think probably strong desire for me was mm, I don't know, actually haven't thought about it in this framework before um, well maybe um, strong desire might have been profession that someone mm. who is in a helping profession mm -hmm. who's um, like engaged in work that's really meaningful to them mm -hmm. um, I could have been okay if they were, maybe there's really two separate things in there, right? Mm -hmm. Helping profession engaged in meaningful work. Mm -hmm. um, helping profession, that's actually not a deal breaker, right? Mm -hmm. I could have been with somebody who uh, was, you know, a mathematician or something. And for all those mathematicians out there, I'm not saying you're not helping people, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, 
but you know, the more like kind of therapist, coach, mm-hmm. teacher, more like kind of that social end of the helping spectrum. Um, and it just happens to be a nice bonus that I'm with somebody who is right. oriented in that way. Um, whereas engaged in meaningful work, that was probably closer to a deal breaker for me. Mm. I think maybe the, the most deal breaker version of it was they have to at least be interested in finding meaningful work, even if they haven't found it yet. They're they're on the search for work that's really going to fill them up. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I was I was very much hoping for a partner who loves what they do and uh, is engaged in doing the work that matters to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ultimately, with this exercise, what we want to end up with is a a list that clarifies for us you know, what should I be looking at to determine whether or not to go on another date with this person? Mm. And generally it's the requirements list. Do Mm. I have enough evidence to tell me that they're um, meeting those deal breakers essentially? Right. That is a great, great point, right? Yeah, I just, I'm really appreciating that because that's all we need. It's another way of saying that maybe is like, is this a possibility worth exploring? Yes. Because as we were saying earlier, we don't need to know. In fact, it would be impossible to know from one date or a couple of dates, is this your life partner? Mm -hmm. Um, All we can really answer is, is this a possibility worth exploring? Mm -hmm. Is this something that we want to keep going and see? See what develops here, see what our relationship is like. And uh, if you know right off the bat, I want kids, this person doesn't want kids, Mm -hmm. kids is a deal breaker for me, that's not a possibility worth exploring. They may be a wonderful human, right? but they're not your life partner. Right. Absolutely. Um, another thing I really love that Logan Yuri talks about in her book is a lot of times people will put, for example, um, has traveled to over 10 countries or is this particular religion, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. And ultimately like it's, it's easier to identify like number of stamps in a passport it's a little harder to identify adventurous nature, mm-hmm. right? And so we want to kind of like tune into if we have things that are maybe identifiable within a, a conversation or on an on a online dating profile, what is the quality you're looking for underneath that? Mm. Interesting. Okay. So for the wants, I, I do want to say that I recommend for the wants section, putting all of the irrelevant traits that we talked about earlier, mm. right? Uh, so these are the easily observable ones. Like uh, I'll give you an example of like a good wants list. Five, 10 or above. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I see that one a lot. Loves to dance. Uh-huh. A chill personality like mm-hmm. me. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, makes at least X. Mm-hmm. Uh, not an accountant. I've seen that one. <laughs> I'm sorry, accountants out there. I really appreciate you. You do good work. <laughs> Never married. Uh-huh. Right, these sorts of things. Um, so again, it's still on your list. It may still be really important to you. And if it is in that category that, you know, research has said, like this doesn't actually contribute to happiness, might be worth placing those in the wants section. Now, again, you do you. If there's something in there that you're like, no, I genuinely cannot, you know, date someone who is X religion, well, then you need to have your list reflect that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this isn't about um, doing what you should do. 
right. because you think that's what it's supposed to look like. It really is a deep inquiry for you of what is on your, mm-hmm. like this is absolutely essential list. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some people, yeah, they it's essential for them to be raising their children in the same religion. Yes. And they need a partner who's at least going to be on board with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. One thing I also want to add about these lists is um, I find that people tend towards one side of uh, a spectrum or another with this exercise. Either they have like a lot of requirements mm-hmm. and a lot of them they consider deal breakers mm-hmm. or they're just kind of confused about what they need. They don't actually have a lot on the list. Interesting. And so I would have you really think about would my friends say I'm a little too picky or would they say I'm not picky enough? Mm. And that might really point you towards looking at the requirements list in particular and considering whether more needs to be on there or actually less. Mm -hmm. A really great question that I like to hold on to to kind of clarify where things go uh, on this list is if I met someone with every other trait that I want in a partner, aside from this one trait I'm looking at, would I be willing to accept that? Yeah. I think that really clarifies like, is this a deal breaker or not? Yeah. That's a great question. Cool. Well, this has been a wonderful uh, chat. I've enjoyed it. I hope other folks are enjoying it as Mm -hmm. well. Um, Should we wrap it up here for today? Can I say one more thing actually? Of course. All of this may be a little bit overwhelming and may feel a little bit like I still don't feel clear. Mm. I really want to emphasize here this this is going to take a little bit of a process. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just thinking in your in your head about all of these things may not be quite enough. And so number one, put pen to paper. Mm-hmm. That can be so clarifying. Yep. And number two, get into conversation with a friend or perhaps a professional to really help you um yeah, pull apart what truly is important for you. You don't need to do this alone. Uh, And in fact, I don't recommend it. Yeah, I am so grateful for all of the friends and coaches and mentors who have supported me uh, in my journey with love and partnership. And it makes such a big difference to not be trying to figure it out by yourself. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode today. If you found this episode useful, we'd love for you to leave us a rating and review in your Apple podcast app. And you can find everything that we mentioned in this show in our show notes on relationshipcenter.com slash podcast. And until next time. We love you too. We love you too. (laughs) 